hey, good morning. Merry Christmas. How are you guys doing today? It is fantastic to be with you guys this morning. Uh, when David asked me to come, uh, I was overjoyed and moved mountains to make this possible. Uh, I love this man, by the way. Uh, I hope you guys too. It's been really fun getting to know him, and it's been fun discovering that we come from the same area, roughly the same area. So we are both uh, locked in our fandom for the 49ers, which is mostly disappointing as well as our fandom for the Giants, which is equally disappointing. But uh, seriously, it is really good to be with you guys. My wife, Sherry, and I planted a church in Ventura a little over three years ago. And four years ago, we started to meet an apartment in Midtown Ventura with three other couples. So there was eight of us praying and seeking the Lord for a new church in the city of Ventura. And, And one of the things that became really clear to us, and this is a longer story, I'll give you the short one. One of the things that became really clear to us is the area that we should plant this church. For a number of reasons, we felt the Lord leading us to and felt really compelled to plant a church in downtown Ventura. Uh, Just the combination of of churches who have planted there and then moved out or churches who had once been fixtures in that part of the city and then moved to other parts of the city and just the reality that it's hard to find spaces to meet and those Spaces that you will find are way more expensive and way smaller. And so we began asking the Lord what this would actually look like. And we really felt compelled to plant a church in downtown Ventura. Now, planting a church in the downtown of any city, Camarillo doesn't really have a downtown, does it? Kind of has Old Town, right? I lived in Camarillo for a while. It has Old Town, and and that's about as close as we can get to a downtown. But in in downtown Ventura, uh, planting there means planting amidst a lot of the problems that come with smaller houses, denser, you know, densely packed together, and, uh, you know, kind of people from way different socioeconomic uh, backgrounds all crammed into a really small area. And so planting in downtown means downtown problems. It means uh, a mission specifically for downtown Ventura. And that's been our journey for the last three or so years. And if I can even just give you a little bit of an update on how things are going, mostly really hard. (laughs) I don't know if you've ever talked to anyone who's planted a church before or has even come in and and helped revitalize a church or even someone like David who comes in new leadership. Like Those those are really hard moments for us. And and one of the reasons it's hard is a bit self-inflicted for us. When we went in and felt compelled to plant in downtown Ventura, we also felt compelled to grow a certain way. Uh, We had seen in Ventura over the last few years um, that some churches kind of accidentally or on purpose fall into the trap of growing just by church transfer. Do you guys know what I mean when I say church transfer? Like just Christians who maybe are unhappy or are looking for a different church just kind of shuttle around. And there's a certain population of Ventura who just kind of move around to different churches. And, and we felt really compelled to to not plant a church banking on growing by people who are, who are just kind of moving around from church to church. But we felt compelled to grow by people coming to know Jesus, by people who are disconnected from the church or maybe who have even had hurt or history with the church and committing to focus our attention there with those people. And so if you are starting to do the math in your head, that means slower growth. It means messier growth. It means walking with people through really crazy life situations. And the reason I can say that with a bit of a smile on my face is because we see Jesus at work. 
We see Jesus at work saving people from addiction, walking with people through relapse after relapse, and seeing the hope of Jesus take root in their life. We're seeing Jesus heal marriages and healing parent-child type relationships. We're working with organizations like the City Center, helping people who are suffering from homelessness transition to stability, and it has been an absolute joy, and it's added 15 years to my life. But we love it. We love uh, being in Ventura. So my wife and I planted this church, Sherry. We also have three kids uh, that are four and under. And so if you're thinking, what are they thinking? We also think that all the time as well. Uh, but our oldest, Calvin, is four, four years old, just turned four in November. Uh, our middle son, Truman, is two and a half. And then we have a little baby girl who just turned one over the summertime. And so life is crazy, but it's good crazy, right? When you have a bunch of kids like that in a house, it's like a 900 square feet house, and we're just on top of each other. We have one bathroom and we're potty training. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, but our oldest just turned four, and that means Christmas for us this year is, is a little bit interesting. It, it takes on a whole new level of fun as parents. I don't know if you parents in the room kind of reach that age, where babies just kind of sit around and your job is to keep them alive, and once they get to a certain age, they have personality that comes out, and they have their own excitements, and they have their own things that they're anticipating and, and looking forward to. And, and so my oldest, Calvin, is, is excited about Christmas in a whole new way this year. And it is amazing. It is amazing. And so we're thinking through all of the different traditions that Sherry, my wife, and I grew up with. And so we're thinking, man, what did we do? What did we really like from our childhood? What do we want to replicate for our kids? How do we want to draw them into the Christmas story? And so it began this journey of, of really cataloging like the different traditions that we had as kids growing up and some of the things we really loved and were really thankful for. And one of those traditions for my family was uh, that Christmas began on a certain day of the year. Christmas began the day after Thanksgiving. So on Thanksgiving, we would all go up to Auburn in Northern California, where a ton of my dad's family lived. And we would gather there. It'd be a big family reunion. But the day after Christmas, at some like awful time in the morning, we would leave and we would go to some remote piece of land someone in my family owned, and we would pick and cut down our own Christmas tree. I mean, nothing makes you feel like more manly than cutting down your own Christmas tree in a forest where no one can hear you scream. And so we would cut down the Christmas tree, we put it on our car, drove all the way home, and that marked Christmas. So then the Christmas decorations came out, we put lights on, we decorate the tree, and, and all the anticipation of Advent and the, and the Jesus stories throughout the month of December, and it really cultivated this sense of anticipation for us. And it was fantastic. And we had this other tradition uh, with our presents, where on Christmas morning, uh, we had stockings that kind of went down the rail, and the rule was we could get up as early as we wanted and open our stockings as long as we did not wake up mom and dad. That was the rule. Brilliant rule. I'm employing that today, right? And so if you woke up mom and dad, the stocking got taken away. That was, that was the deal. And you know, once everyone was awake, we did the presents thing, but there was also one other kind of present tradition we had. It was on Christmas Eve, after we'd go to a, a church service or something like that, we would come home, we'd have a big dinner, and we got to pick one present to open. Now, when I say we got to pick, that, that makes you feel like we had a choice in the matter, but there were presents laid out for us that we got to select. And here's the truth about Christmas Eve presents. They were never the presents we wanted. They're like some aunt was in town and, and left us something very strange, or, or they'd be like Christmas pajama pants, 
Christmas pajama pants are for the moms. Nobody else liked them. Moms liked them. And so we'd open up the Christmas pajama pants, and I would be, as a kid, like so disappointed, you know, thinking that that's where the good stuff would happen. You know, that's where I'd have the Xbox. That's where I have, you know, whatever it is, a new drum set or something like that. And then it would just tee up for this momentous day of like, suddenly my parents were millionaires on Christmas Day, and just like gifts like Oprah left and right. And And that's never how it was. It was, you know, Christmas Eve present, and it was always a bit of a letdown. There was so much anticipation starting the day after Thanksgiving. And as a kid, I cared about the presents. And when we got to Christmas Eve, it was always something that was a huge, huge letdown. Now, that story probably says more about me than it does about anything else and where some of my misplaced hope and anticipation was. But I was thinking about that story as I was praying for you guys and thinking about uh, what we should be wrestling with today, this Sunday morning, right before Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. And it really got me thinking about this idea of hope. And hope is, is not like a new idea. It's part of the Advent story. It's part of kind of one of those themes that rise to the top when we were thinking about Christmas. But I just began to thinking about hope and those stories of our traditions and what I'm trying to instill in our kids this Christmas and just how often my hope was placed in all the wrong things. Now, the Christmas Eve present story, it's, it's a funny story, and, and I was just let down every year, and it just felt like Lucy and the football and like a running joke. But, but really, I think we can all identify with finding out our hope is in all the wrong places. Has it ever happened to you? Maybe that's even happened in how we think about God. We, we have felt let down or disappointed. We've, we've encountered these moments in life where we thought we are putting our trust in something or someone that was secure, and we get let down. Now, hope in the Bible is a really peculiar thing. It's different than maybe how you and I would think about hope today. It's this ancient practice and habit that permeates the entire scriptures. And it seems like a really vital component for how we relate to God. And what I think is astounding is the way Paul, one of the writers of the New Testament, describes hope as he's writing to the church in Rome. If you have a Bible, head over to Romans chapter 5. I find this absolutely astounding. So many of the biblical writers talk and write about hope, and something about what Paul was saying to the church in Rome caught my attention. In Romans chapter 5, Paul is, is describing how we've been justified by our faith in Jesus, and because of that justification, we have peace with God. Absolutely beautiful. And he says in verse 2 that that we have this hope of glory. We can rejoice in this hope of glory. And look what he says in in verse 3. He says more than that. He says we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, but more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character, and character produces what? Hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who he has given us. Now, if you have the NIV or maybe a different translation that reads, hope does not disappoint. That caught my attention this Christmas and how often we place our hope in all the wrong things, but Paul makes this really provocative claim that hope in God does not put us to shame. It won't disappoint. Have you ever been disappointed by people or something or a situation or a relationship? 
right? Maybe you've been disappointed by your spouse or your kids, maybe by your boss or your career, maybe even by friends, close friend, your church, your pastor. Well, not David, but maybe other people you've been. But I mean, have you placed your hope in people and just found yourself like picking up the pieces and totally let down? And chances are, yes. And Paul makes this really audacious claim that hope does not disappoint. We do something really profound and unique in this Advent season. It's kind of leading up to celebrating Christmas. We place ourselves between two realities, right? The reality that that something has been done in the past. Christ has come. He has entered the world as a baby and forever changed all time and space and reality. But we stand in between that moment and when he comes again. And Advent is sort of walking through this practice. This Advent means awaiting or arrival, and it's standing in between these two moments where we enjoy and celebrate that Christ has come, but we also eagerly await him to come again. And as Christians, we are a people filled with longing and expectation. It's built into our very DNA. It's built into our faith that we are always sitting in this reality of celebrating what has come and eagerly awaiting that to come in completion. And we're always sitting in this moment of tension. And as we're talking about hope, I think it really begs the question, and we have to ask ourselves, why do we need hope in the first place? Like life in Camarillo is pretty good. It's pretty good, guys. I've lived in Camarillo for a while before we moved to Ventura. Life in Camarillo is like, I mean, was it Pleasant Valley is the name of your school district? Man, no joke. (laughs) For real. Like, life is amazing. Why do we need hope? And I would imagine you probably don't have to go back that far in your mind to, to think of how you've been let down by people or relationships to think, man, there has to be something more. Or you open up your your news app or the newspaper and you see the injustice, the evil, the suffering in this world, and you just think something is not right. Like it's, life is good, but it, it's not all that it could be. It's something has to be done. And really what the Bible invites us into asking is somebody has to do something about this. That since the beginning, we had this moment where everything is as it should be. And immediately, almost immediately, sin entered the equation. And since that moment in Genesis chapter 3, we're asking who is going to do something about all this? Who is going to come and finally make things right? Now, oftentimes, I think we accidentally believe that hope equals optimism. Hope is not the same as optimism, just putting on your rose-colored glasses for the day. The Bible actually takes a very different approach to what hope is. So in the Old Testament, there are kind of two primary words that the authors will use to talk about hope. And the first one is this word, uh, yakal. Can you say that with me, yakal? Well done. You're on your way to being Hebrew scholars. Perfect. David, this is going to be great. I'm going to hand you a bunch of, you know, ready Hebrew scholars here. You call, and this just simply means to wait for something. So maybe the story you can have in your mind is, is Noah and the ark, and after the, you know, he has to wait for the floodwaters to recede before he gets on dry land, right? So to wait for. But there's this other word that comes up a little more frequently, and it's this word kava. Say that with me. Kava. Well done. 
And this, this is more than just to wait for something, right? It comes from, from this word kav, which means cord. Think like a rubber band. And it's that feeling you experience as you start to stretch a cord or a rubber band. And there's kind of tension, there's anxiety, there's anticipation until that's released, right? So the image we have here is, is not just a waiting. Hope is a waiting, but it's also to wait with tension, with anticipation, like something is going to come. And so for me, I'm like a huge Star Wars nerd. And so every time a Star Wars movie comes out, the very next, not even the next day, it's like that night I'm reading blogs and trying to find interviews and trying to find any like spoilers or morsels of information about the next thing that's coming. That's not like a healthy waiting. That's like a addictive waiting with expectation and hope and like hoping they make different decisions in this movie than they did in that movie or whatever. And so it's this kind of longing, building up things, right? It's not a static hope where I'm sitting on my couch just waiting, but it is an active one where I'm like finding any information I can to feed my hunger for whatever is coming next. And this is one of those main words in the Old Testament, kavah, to evoke this sense of not just sitting back in a static waiting, but in eagerly anticipating something has to change, something has to be done. And so in the Old Testament, hope means to wait with tension and expectation but waiting for what? What are we waiting for? Right? What are the people of God waiting for? Now, if you know the story of the people of God in the Old Testament, you know it's the story of a people who are supposed to be bound to the one true creator God, but still find ways of messing it up all the time. And they eventually find themselves in the state of self-destruction and exile. And during those times, there's a whole bunch of prophets that are trying to call people back to God. They turn from the idols, don't worship the other gods, and even some of those prophets are trying to explain why they find themselves in the situation that they are in, exile. And one of those prophets is a guy named Isaiah, and, one of, and he tries to give a picture, and he tries to give a bit of a description for why they are in exile, for why they are experiencing what they are experiencing. And he has this line in Isaiah chapter 8, right towards the beginning of that book, and this line says, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. This is how Isaiah is describing the current state of the Israelites. They are far from God. God is distanced from them. He is hiding his face from them. But look at this last line, and I will hope in him. It's that same word, kavah. I will wait with tension and expectation for God himself. And the implication is here to, for God to unhide his face. Or maybe in, well, yeah, to unhide his face. There's tension and expectation here. But it's not an empty hope, like a wish, like throwing a penny in a pond, right? This is a hope grounded in something. A hope in, in God's past faithfulness. You see, throughout the Old Testament, biblical writers and even God himself would appeal to his past work to build a case for how they should live in the future. That's why we get lines like at the beginning of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, where God says, I am Yahweh, I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt and then gives them this way to live. Throughout the Old Testament, he's always appealing to what he has done, his past work, his faithfulness to give us motivation for the hope that we should have in him. It's God's past faithfulness that motivates our hope for a future. 
And so there's a sense in Scripture that we have to look back to help us look forward well. Because how we look forward has to be grounded in something. Our hope has to be grounded in something. And the Bible is littered with all these kinds of look back, look forward moments. And one of those moments is one of the things we celebrate in this season. In Isaiah chapter 7, just one chapter before, God himself says this. In Isaiah 7, 14, God himself says, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. This was written some six, seven hundred years before Jesus was born. And this was a promise that God had made that he would once again be with his people. Remember, just a chapter after, Isaiah is describing the season. The Lord is hiding his face, and I will have hope. And this is what that hope is grounded in the promise that God will be with us. And here's why that the prophecy is so amazing. It's not just that God wanted to be with you and I, which is amazing and incredible, but it's that God delivered on that promise. Flip over in your Bibles to Matthew chapter one. God delivered on this promise. Matthew chapter one, famous text around the birth of Jesus. And I want you to see if we can pick out any familiar language from the prophet Isaiah. And Matthew writes, now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed,